0: Alright, so we're not going to review too much tonight. I just want to mention, by the way, we have talked uh, certainly early on about inputs, insights, and uh, integration, and that was kind of a rubric we were using, and I encouraged you all, as as I've been doing for these last few months, we have lots and lots of inputs coming into our lives in lots of ways from other people, things we're reading, the Bible, God directly kind of doing things in us. We come to church, small group, conversations we have, lots of inputs, but the problem is that if we don't take some time to reflect on the inputs and try to go the next step to get insights, those inputs will just you know be like a cacophony of sound that never actually brings about change and, and, and kind of takes root in our lives. So take some time to reflect, and I've been encouraging you, are there things, now that we're pretty much finished with three of our four pillars, are there things that we talked about those inputs, were there any insights that... Have been meaningful, significant to you that help you understand, you know, how to read God's word a little differently, how to understand, you know, the Bible as a as a big meta-narrative, as a story, how the gospel impacts us, how the gospel is, you know, Jesus' story presented in the Bible. And then last week we talked about absolutes, convictions, preferences, living in harmony and community with people, even though we may not dot all the I's and cross all the T's exactly the same way. So what insights? My guess is that starting tonight and next week, um, you're going to be asked to think about things a little differently than maybe you've thought about them before, and you're going to be looking at some things that may be new to you. I would encourage you, rather than just you know throw up your hands and say, "I don't get it," hang in there, wrestle with it, and I guarantee you that if you can hang in and we, we can get a better bead on how God made us and how the gospel changes us, I believe it'll revolutionize our lives. You know, of, of, of the things that I've learned and processed you know, for 30-some years, I would say this idea, this model, has probably been more transformative in my thinking and my living than probably anything else. So we're going to take a few weeks. It's, it's not complicated, but it's going to take us a while to get through it. And I don't want you to think, oh, this is Charles' idea. Um, I want to show you this is kind of growing from Scripture. Yes, it is. A, it's a construct, right? It's a conviction that I'm kind of building, but I'm using biblical data to do it. And so you need to do your work and you test it to see if it does sync up uh, with what the Bible teaches and how we can um, learn from that and be changed by that. So, what insights? You're going to hopefully have some of those these next few weeks as well. And then integration. What do you build into your life? Not once or twice apply. What becomes integrated into your life so that now it's a pattern? Now you actually live this way regularly. What changes? And so, I've been using those three steps for months now, and it's been helpful for me, right? Inputs, um, insights, integration. And I've been encouraging you to do it. It's been helpful to me. If it doesn't work for you, forget it. Well, let, let me give you a little bit of a frame of reference. So we have four pillars. We started with a definition. We reviewed that last week because we needed something about definition to understand where people are, where God wants them to be, and why it's important for us to have a prioritized theology. So we started with a definition, and then we looked at three pillars. We said the Bible's a big story. If you like technical terms, we read the Bible as a meta-narrative, right? Meta just means beyond. It's a Greek prefix, uh, beyond. So it's a giant story that all the small stories get swallowed up into, right? So it's a big story. We read our lives into that story. Secondly, we talked about that the Bible's Jesus' story. It's not just any story. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The Bible's point is Jesus'. And the purpose of all of the scripture is to lead us to him. Everything's flowing to him and from him. Thirdly, we need a prioritized theology to do mission, right? If we're gonna become all things to all people in order to win some, if we're gonna come alongside people so that they can become like us, we have to understand the difference between absolutes, convictions, preferences. Now, you may have slight, you know, slight, you may have different things in the conviction preference circle, but you don't die on those hills, right? You die on the absolute hills, you live out your convictions, and you dialogue with those that have different convictions, but you give space and liberty to people to have different convictions, preferences, we sacrifice our preference so other people can get theirs met. So that's kind of the three. And tonight, we're going to start looking at gospel transformation, which you probably heard me say this before on Sundays, is not self-help, all right? Self-help is outside in self help is i 'm going to you know turn over a new leaf i 'm going to start doing these new things right that's outside in no the gospel changes inside out and you're going to see how that works and what metaphors and what biblical pictures actually uh, grow into that so we're going to spend a couple of weeks on that uh, tonight we'll get a good half of the model with biblical um, example or illustrations. We'll kind of unpack that information. And then next week, we'll get the rest of the model with lots of biblical illustrations. And then the last week, we'll uh, play around with the model a little bit. All right, so that's where we're headed. Last week, we uh, and early on, we talked about four circles, that you've got to be comfortable, conversant. Uh, if, if we're going to understand ministry, understand ourselves, understand scripture, these four things get integrated. Here's what I mean you need to understand something about the ancient world. The ancient world is the world in which God delivered the scripture. So you've got to understand something about, you know, ancient history, something, biblical history, biblical culture, because that's the culture, that's the world in which God delivered the scripture. If you don't know anything about the context, you stand no shot of actually understanding what it meant. And if we don't understand what it meant, we can't understand what it means we too quickly at times want to wrestle with what does this passage mean and what does it mean for me? But that's a second question. The first question is, what did it mean? What did it mean to the people to whom it was written? Once you understand that, then you can ask the second question, well, then what should it mean? What does it mean to me? We live in a different context, a different culture. So you need to understand something about the ancient world, something about our contemporary world, and you're going to see a big difference in transformation, the from our contemporary world to the ancient world, what God says in the scripture. You've probably heard me, maybe you remember, sometimes I phrase that point this way. One of the biggest cultural differences that our world has with scripture is this. Our culture continually presents this message. My main problems are out here, and the solution is in here, right? I have the solution. Follow your heart, look inside yourself, you know, who are you? Stand up against those things, right? Problems out here, solutions in here. The Bible, the gospel presents that exactly oppositely. The Bible says, no, the problem is in here. The real problem's inside. The solution is outside. The solution is God. The solution is Jesus, the gospel, Holy Spirit, invading your life and bringing that inside out change. So, what we're going to be talking about tonight is going to be almost opposite to lots of messages we hear in our world, our culture regularly. Well, you need to understand something about your ministry world. And uh, you'll probably hear me say this a few times the next few weeks. I don't mean it super critically, but here's how it's gonna come out. Lots of churches, lots of Sunday school materials, lots of small group materials, lots of sermons. They actually present a very different model of change and transformation than the model we're gonna talk about. They often talk about external change. And even though you're in a church, um, that doesn't mean all of a sudden everything you hear is being driven by an inside-out change. And so in our ministry world, hopefully not as much Calvary, but it's very common in Christian context and churches to understand or to hear about change outside in rather than inside out. And we'll give you examples of that as we go. And I'm really going to ask you, and the main reason I I wanted to show you the worlds again, I'm going to ask you to take what we're going to talk about tonight, the next couple of weeks, and rather than just learn it, you know, kind of hear it, think about it and say, oh, that's good, or I don't like it, whatever. I want you to try to internalize it and actually use it. So I want you, even if you're not sure you agree with it, just give it a try. So the transparency we'll use after we run through a bunch of Bible passages tonight I'm gonna present a model at the end that'll help you understand everything we do in the beginning. And I I want you to give it a shot. So when you read the Bible this week, when you pray, when you think about other people, think about change, when you listen to maybe small group material, you test what's going on with what we're gonna talk about tonight. All right, now here's what we're gonna do. We're going to start with biblical investigation. I mentioned last week, uh, you're going to need a Bible or you're going to need your phone if your eyes are real, you know, some, I, I need to print so big, I get like five words on the screen. Uh, so you need an iPad. You're, we're, we're going to spend time in the, we're going to look at a number of passages and I'll warn you right up front. Some of them are going to be really familiar and you're going to say, I can't believe we're talking about, it. We, we know this. Okay, yeah, just hang in there. We're going to look at some other passages that are completely foreign to you. And I know you may have read them before. Hopefully, you know, maybe you read through the Bible once or twice before. Some of these passages may be a little strange, maybe completely foreign. We're going to try to answer this question through all of the passages How did God make us as human beings? What's the problem and what's the solution? So, and, and I, I said this early on only a biblical perspective on when it comes to people gives you enough material to understand what we see in the world. And it comes right in the first couple chapters of the Bible. The Bible tells us right up front, chapter one, human beings are made in the image of God. Well, you know, being in the image of God, that, that accounts for all the really great stuff and all the good stuff and the wonderful stuff and the generous stuff and the gracious stuff and the benevolent stuff that human beings do. You know, human beings are incredibly generous, gracious, benevolent, philanthropic creatures. It's incredible. I mean, just look at how much money is given. You mentioned what's going on in the Ukraine. And, you know, we've had more phone calls. More people say, what can we do? How can I give? I want to come along. I mean, human beings are incredible that way. And human beings are horrible. And human beings are evil. Part of what's, pro- what's prompting that generosity and philanthropic attitude evil and horror and wickedness and terrible, right? Circumstances, situations, and atrocities. Only the scripture can account for both. We're made in the image of God, all the good stuff. We are finite and fallen, fallen, separated from God, alienated from all the bad stuff. We live in a world where people often say, you know, human beings are basically good. Well, if human beings are basically good, how do you account for all the mess around? Only the scripture can account for both sides. Made in God's image, all the good stuff. Fallen from God in rebellion against God, all the bad stuff. Only the scripture gives us a balanced portrayal that then allows us to understand um, the rest of life. Well, we're gonna take the next step and say, okay, let's go underneath made in God's image, finite and fallen. Let's kind of play with that a little bit and see if we can get more data concerning what the scripture teaches us about how we're built and how we're changed. All right, so you ready? Well, here we go. First passage. We uh, actually looked at Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago, uh, but we're gonna look at it again. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. If Psalm 1 isn't a familiar uh, companion to you, I encourage you to uh, make it a good friend. Um, Psalm 1 is, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, it was written as the introduction to the Psalms. So it's a little different than the other Psalms. Psalm 1 is not a prayer, It's not like the other psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 is kind of a declaration. Psalm 1 introduces the next 149 psalms. And here's the basic point. There are two ways to live. That's what Psalm 1 says, two ways to live. Be careful you're living the right way. Only two ways, not three, not five, not 100, only two ways. Make sure you're living the right way. Let me read it and we'll play with it. Not too long, we have a lot of passages, but let me read it. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. All right, two ways to live. And uh, the psalmist, not, there's no author mentioned, we're not sure who wrote it, right? The psalmist begins with a description. And he begins by saying, now, the wicked guys, right, the guys that are living on the wrong side, they are Walking with the wrong group, standing in the shoes of the wrong group, and eventually giving counsel as representatives of the wrong group. They're becoming what they're listening to, right? And then he shifts gears and begins to talk about the righteous guy. So the wicked, that's kind of the description at the beginning, verse one. verse two shifts gears a little bit. and rather than talking about walking, standing, sitting, which is what we would expect, he completely shifts the metaphor. And then he says, "Oh yeah, but the righteous. And, not walk stand sit. The righteous meditate on the law of the Lord, right day and night. They're, they're thinking about it. Then he kind of puts down his pen. Right? he says, I, 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 "This isn't working." And he picks up a paintbrush almost, and he says, "Let me explain it this way." And rather than trying to describe what the righteous person's like, he paints a picture of what the righteous person's like. And he says. The righteous person is like a tree, a tree planted by a stream. And the tree is planted by, now notice, the tree didn't grow naturally there, right? The tree is planted, somebody planted the tree next to the stream. And the tree is always flourishing, lots of leaves, and always fruitful, bearing fruit in season, always with leaf, right? Flourishing and fruitful because it's planted next to the stream. Now the point is, if you think back to verse two, the righteous man meditates on the Lord, right and the, and the law of the Lord, and then lives a certain way is the implication. What's the picture say? The picture says, "Just like the roots of the tree are sucking in nourishment through the roots, right next to the stream, the tree is, fruit, is flourishing and fruitful because it's being nourished with next to the stream." Here's the point. What is unseen, root sucking in stream water, is producing what's seen. That's the point. Meditation, right, on the law of the Lord, produces a righteous life. Just like a tree planted next to a stream, sucking in nourishment, right, from the stream, all that it needs is underground, unseen. But what's unseen is producing what's seen, leaves, and fruit. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, and you know, you can test this as well. Every biblical metaphor that is used for the people of God or for you know, a mature follower of Jesus, whatever you wanna call that, every metaphor in the Bible that does that, I'm convinced, has a missional component, but we're almost always, or most often, blinded to the missional piece. So, for example, we looked at Jesus the Good Shepherd last Sunday, right? We missed the missional piece, right? Well, what do we do when we talk about sheep? Oh, yeah, sheep, right? They look to the shepherd. They listen to the shepherd's voice. But that's not an end. Sheep produce wool. The wool is taken from the sheep, and the wool gives warmth to those people that are cold and allows them to have life. The sheep provides nourishment and life to other people. How about the potter and clay, right? We are the clay, God the potter. God doesn't make us pots as trophies to be put in a trophy case. The potter's making pots that are useful for people to sustain life. They're making pots that so they can cook, making pots that so they can store stuff. Every biblical metaphor has a missional component, right? Something that affects, reaches out, touches, and brings life nourishment to others. We often miss that. Because that's kind of the uncomfortable piece. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and it's right here what good does the fruit do to the tree itself? Almost none at all. In fact, if the tree produces fruit and the fruit is allowed to ripen, it'll drop from the tree, it'll eventually rot on the ground. It'll rain or whatever, right? The stream water, it's wet there. The seeds will eventually germinate in the ground and those seeds will take root. And eventually all of those seeds will become little trees that'll choke the life out of the tree that produced the fruit. What good is fruit? To provide nourishment and life to others. What good are the leaves? To provide shade and comfort for others. There's always a missional piece. That's what Psalm 1's about. Um, and another point uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago you need to remember. Trees are not fountains right? What does a fountain do? A fountain sucks in water and shoots out water. Trees aren't fountains. Trees aren't hoses. They don't suck in water, and shoot out water. Isn't that amazing? Trees suck in water and shoot out leaves. Suck in water and shoot out fruit for the life of others. Boy, how many... um, I, I don't mean this as pejoratively as it may sound. How many times do we think our mission is or how many times have you heard Christians who think their main job is, is to like quote Bible verses at people? That's not what trees... Trees don't suck in water and shoot out water. Trees suck in water and shoot out leaves that provide shade, shoot out fruit that gives nourishment and life to people. That's what trees do. So a couple couple points, you gotta keep these in mind, right? What do trees do? They remind us... That what's unseen produces what is seen for the benefit and life of others. You got that? We could play with Psalm 1 for another couple hours, but we're going to move on. All right, we got that piece though? You need to know that. All right, next one. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. And I'm usually not, not, not a guy that likes to run around the Bible, but you're going to see the point here. In Luke chapter 6, you're going to notice that Jesus was thinking about Psalm 1. We are really biblically impoverished to the degree that we don't know, understand, and have read through a bunch of the stuff in the Old Testament. I mentioned Sunday that when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, he didn't just look around on the hill, oh, there's a shepherd. You know what? I'm like that. I'm a shepherd. No, he's playing with two Old Testament passages. He's playing with Psalm 23 But mostly he's bouncing off of Ezekiel 34. And in Ezekiel 34, God reprimands all the bad shepherds. And at the end of the chapter, I wish I had more time last Sunday to talk about it. I felt bad. I should have talked about that. (laughs) The really cool thing in Ezekiel chapter 34 is the, the bad shepherds are so bad They're using the sheep. They're exploiting the sheep, right? They're beating up the sheep. They're chasing them away. They're not healing them. They're not nourishing them. They're not not feeding them. They're not doing any of that stuff. They're bad shepherds. And then at the end of Ezekiel 34, God says this, the situation's so bad, I will come myself and shepherd my sheep. And then in John 10, Jesus says, here I am. I am that shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. Remember, God said he was coming because all the bad shepherds there, I'm here. That's what he's saying, right? Well, just like Ezekiel 34, Psalm 23, Jesus is thinking about that, he's wrestling with that, he's living that out in John 10. Look what he says in Luke chapter six. He's thinking about Psalm one, here's what he says. No good tree bears bad fruit tree metaphor. In fact, it's it's kind of all over the Bible, right? We got vine and branches. We got fruit of the spirit. We've got Psalm 1. I mean, the agrarian metaphor is a very popular biblical metaphor. Jesus is obviously playing with that. It's all over the Old Testament. Jesus is bouncing off of Psalm 1, but did you notice he tweaks it? In Psalm 1, we don't have two trees, do we? We have a tree that's planted by the stream, and then we have chaff, Right, the waste material of grain, right? So, you know, you take a sledge or whatever you're gonna do, and you crack the grain. I'm way out of my league here, (laughs) and you kind of take the husks off the grain. Well, then you have to get rid of the husks from the seed or whatever you're gonna, and so you winnow it, you throw it up in the air, and the chaff gets blown away. It's good for nothing. So in Psalm 1, the comparison is not tree to tree. In Psalm 1, the comparison is tree to chaff. Jesus likes the tree picture but he tweaks it. And he says, "Uh, I'm going to talk about two different trees. So we got a tree planted by the stream that's producing good fruit. And we got another tree. And that tree is producing rotten fruit. Now he doesn't go into big explanation of streams, but it does take a genius to figure out where this is going. Um, He's thinking about all the tree stuff from the Old Testament. And he says, "Um, I like that tree idea. Notice in Jesus' illustration, what's unseen is producing what's seen. What's seen proves what the tree is. Fruit does not make the tree an apple tree. The apples prove it's an apple tree. It's an apple tree even before it produces apples. The apples prove it's an apple tree. That's what Jesus is saying. The fruit on the tree prove what kind of tree it is. If the fruit is good, and what is it good for? Nourishing and giving life to other people, right? So you get figs from it. You like Fig Newtons? Here's the picture, right? And it, it gives nourishment, life, and cookies to other people. What do the other trees give? Briars, thorns. You don't eat that stuff, right? Maybe it's a toothpick, but you don't eat it. Um, bad trees produce bad fruit. The fruit proves what the tree is. The fruit doesn't make it that. The fruit proves what it is. Bad tree, bad fruit. The bad fruit proves it's a bad tree. Good fruit proves it's a good tree, right? But then Jesus does something really interesting, kind of like what Psalm 1 does. He then says, but we're really talking about people. Do you notice that? Now, now I'm, I'm going to ask you, you need to yell loud because I can't hear up here and the people online need to hear. In Jesus' explanation, What part of a human being would the roots represent? Heart. Yeah, that's right, right? So what does Jesus say? Just like with the tree, right? The roots are sucking in stuff and whatever they're sucking in is going to affect and shape the fruit and a good tree is going to produce good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. And so if you've got a good heart, roots, you'll produce good fruit. If you have a bad heart, heart, you'll produce bad fruit. And then he even gives us an example of one kind of fruit. What kind of fruit would come from a heart? Do you see any words there that kind of remind you of, oh yeah, this is what you would evidence. this is what you would see? What's he say? What would be an example of fruit that a human being is producing from his or her heart? Yeah, yeah, words, words, of right? See, words of your mouth. So what we say evidences what's in our heart. So our words are heard. In a sense, they're seen, but there's a whole support structure under the words that are producing it. So your words don't really start in your mouth. Your words start in your heart. And the things you say are evidencing what's in your heart. A little earlier, he says, brings out evil things, right? The things are what you would see. So a bad heart, you can't see that, is being manifest in evil things that are seen and heard and put into play. A good heart will be evidenced in words and things that are put into play that are tangible and experienced by others, right? I always think of this illustration when I'm playing with unseen and seen. My father was um, was a building engineer when I was growing up and he would have to go, he worked for the school district, Philadelphia, and we would occasionally, I would go with him on weekends or whatever, and we would go to different schools, and you know, his place of operation, his space was like in the boiler room, right, and where all the mechanical stuff is, and I, I don't know how to do any of that, but I'd go with him. He would, you know, sometimes there would be, oh, we have no heat, you have to go, so he'd make the charge, I you want to come, I'd go with him, and he'd stand there, and he'd check in the boil. the boilers are working, and And he would look up and there were often these big steel tanks, like up in the ceiling. And uh, he would look up and sometimes he'd say this, oh, that's the problem. There's no water in that tank. Are you like Superman with x-ray vision or it's a steel tank? How in the world do you know there's no water in it? How would he know there was no water in that tank? It had a sight gauge on the front, right? There was a glass tube that was connected to the tank And the water level in the glass tube would match the water level in the tank because they were connected at the bottom. So he could look at the sight gauge and see exactly how much water was in the tank, even though he couldn't see in the tank. That's what Jesus is saying. Scary, right? We can listen to each other's words and have some idea of what's in our heart or what's in their heart. We can see what people do, experience what they do, and know what's in their heart. Now not exactly you maybe have a sight gauge problem right but our actions what we see and experience or what other people see and experience of us is an indication of what's in our hearts what's unseen what's in the tank is producing what's seen in the sight gauge Jesus metaphor much better what's unseen the root structure and what you're sucking in is producing the stuff that's seen make no mistake if you're producing bad fruit, that only comes from a bad heart. And if you're producing good fruit, that only comes from a good heart. Sure as shooting, that's how it works. So don't say, well, yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm, all my actions are messed up, you know, but, but in my heart, I'm good. No, in your heart, you're bad if you're producing a bunch of bad stuff. That's what Jesus says. So he's playing with Psalm 1. He's just tweaking it. Are you ready for another one? Now, those two are familiar. We're going to jump to one now that is probably a little unfamiliar. Turn to Ezekiel 14. It's one of my favorite passages. Now, keep in mind the things we've talked about. We're going to add another element now. So, so far, we've got roots, fruit, hearts, and words, right? Evil things, right? Things. So, we've got those things going on, and now uh, we're going to add another component to that, and the model will Clean up the stuff and put it in order in a minute. So here's what's going on. And Ezekiel even tells us in chapter 14, if you've never read Ezekiel, you should have a really colorful guy. Yeah. He's kind of semi-psychotic, but he's a fun read, right? He's crazy. Um, So, and and some of the passages we're going to read now are some of my favorite because in some of these, God is like trash talking. Like God's like an NBA player in these passages, right? Um, And and I always love that. I love what Jesus does. Well, here's God kind of doing So here's what he says. Some of the elders of Israel came to me, this is Ezekiel talking, and sat down in front of me. So Ezekiel, you know, he's kind of gained a reputation, kind of being a prophet, speaking for God. And so some of the elders come and they sit in front of him. They want to inquire. So what's going on? Then the word of the Lord came to me. So God says, "Uh, okay, Ezekiel, son of man, and he's talking to Ezekiel, son of man, These men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of you Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices when any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord." And if a prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They'll be my people. I'll be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. All right, so here's what's going on. Never remember ideas, right? What's unseen is producing what's seen. We got roots and heart over here, or roots and fruit. Jesus expands that. And Jesus says, yeah, roots are like heart, fruit stuff. That's like actions and words. Jesus says that. Now, Ezekiel tells us what the problem is, both at the heart level and the action level. What's the heart problem in Ezekiel? idols. You know, this is one of the passages, and there aren't a lot of these. This is one of the passages in the Bible where God kind of pulls back the curtain and lets you see what's going on behind the scenes. And I don't know about you, I I always like that. I I like to know how the magicians do their tricks. You know, sometimes I watch that on YouTube because I want to know. And like, I love Job 1 where you know the curtain gets pulled and Job he has no idea what's going on but we the readers get to see what's happening behind the scenes and here in Ezekiel 14 God kind of pulls back the curtain and says now let me show you how this whole idol idolatry mess operates you cannot my paraphrase you cannot make an idol with your hands unless you have first built one in your heart. Your hands will just make and follow and do whatever your heart has fashioned as an idol. There aren't many passages in the Bible to talk about, you know, idols in the heart, but here's a clear one. And what does Ezekiel keep saying? keep over and over and over. God's saying through over. Okay. Step one, you fashion an idol in your heart. You made idols in your heart. Step two, then you put stumbling blocks in front of your faces. The stuff you've made is being built by what's unseen in your heart. There's the principle again, right? We can't see what's in our hearts. Step one, we make idols in our hearts. Then all of a sudden, we wind up building something, doing something, living out what that idol is calling us to do. It's this idea in Ezekiel 14, where the uh, really famous John Calvin quote comes from, right? So Calvin in the Institutes, which Emery's reading, <laughs> John Calvin in the Institutes has this, most people haven't read the Institutes, but they know this quote. Here's what Calvin said. The human heart is an idol factory. That's exactly right. Don't ever think, at least this side, you know, don't ever think you're going to like weed out the last idol of your heart. You no sooner smash that one, another one's born. Right? We play this fighting idolatry in our heart game over. That that's part of the Christian life, smashing idols in our hearts. Now, we live in a world. Certainly, in you know North America, in the United States, we would say we really don't have an idolatry problem. You know, you don't put fruit in front of little statues, and you know, you don't go to pagan temples and bow down and worship. It, do you have the Ezekiel fourteen problem? Oh my goodness! We have that problem, right? I have that problem. What do we do? We continue to make idols in our hearts. We we just don't fashion religious idols with our hands anymore. We're following and serving into things that are much more sanitized now. But make no mistake, they are just as much idols out here that are built from idols in here as they were in Old Testament times. The process is exactly the same. Notice what is unseen idols in your heart, is producing what's seen. So if you've got an idol in your heart, you will be producing stuff, actions, words, thoughts, feelings out here based on what that idol's driving in your heart. See how that works? It's probably time for a little bit of a definition. Um, heart in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, does not mean exactly what heart means for us Americans, right? Or people in English. When I say the word heart, what part of human beings do you automatically think of? What part? Emotion, right? I love you with all my heart. No. In the Bible, heart does not mean feelings. No. Heart is not feelings. Heart in the Bible is control center, right? Just like it says in Proverbs 4. Out of the human heart... Life flows. The heart is the wellspring of all of life. In the Bible, heart would be much more synonymous with mind than it would be with feeling. So when Romans 12, one and two, right? Be renewed in your mind, that's heart language. That, so it's not emotion like Valentine's Day heart. This is heart control center, the wellspring of life. And I'll explain it a little later with a picture. You'll kind of see. But we're not talking about emotion. We're talking about center right? We're talking about the wellspring of life. So Ezekiel's kind of adding to our little definition, right? So now he's saying, yeah, we all have a heart problem. And the definition of a heart problem is (laughs) we've got idols in there. We've got competition for God. That's what the problem is. We've elevated, we've promoted something, someone to the place that only God should have. That's the problem. And when that stuff becomes what is... Causing your life spring to burst forth. Now you got all hell breaking loose, right? That's what's going on in Genesis chapter three. Same stuff. All right, we're tracking. All right, but let's uh, shift to uh, a real trash talking passage. Right? You want to? You want to hear trash talking? Here we go. Uh, you wouldn't think Isaiah's a trash talker. He's he's the most reserved of the. Pro- he's like the proper prophet. If Jeremiah's kind of you know an angry crybaby. Uh, Isaiah is kind of the reserved, polished prophet, right? You you, you don't see a bad side of him. Oh, he gets ticked (laughs) up. Let me begin reading in, you know what? I'll I'll begin reading in 12. I'll I'll give you the kind of the key so you can look for it. Here's what Isaiah is doing. He's going to talk about idolatry. We've got got idolatry now, so let's hear what Isaiah is going to say about idolatry. (laughs) Here's what he's saying. You want to know how to deal with idols? Just Compare. God's not afraid of your idols. God says, bring them on. Bring them on. Let's compare. A couple times in this passage, God's going to say, to whom will you compare me? And then he lists what idols do, what he does. Um, So here we go. I'll begin reading in verse 12. Now, remember, we're going to do comparison. So let's read a little description of God. You want to kind of have your breath taken away and fall down, you read some of this Isaiah 40 stuff and look at a sunrise. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? Now here we go. To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner did they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them billions and billions and billions by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Turn over to 44. This is some of the best stuff. Remember that. To whom will you compare me? Just God says, okay, bring it on. Bring your idols on. Let's do a little inventory here. Verse 9. All who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool, works it in the coals, shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shine, shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used for fuel, for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire... And over it, he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself and says, "Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He says to it, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over. They can't see and their minds closed. They cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. Here we go. A deluded heart misleads him. What's the engine underneath all that mess? He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Now, those two passages in Isaiah are really cool. We need to read that stuff a little more frequently, right? But did you notice the point? How do you deal with idols, whether in your heart or in your hands? How do you deal with what you may be tempted to worship and run after, whether it's you know a retirement account, money, vacation house, another person? Here's what God says, bring it on, bring it on. Let's just run inventory. What can those things actually do for you? And compare that to who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. To whom will you compare me? And at that point, it's just an IQ test, right? I mean, you don't even have to be spiritual, you just have to be thinking. Uh, Half of it, I bake my bread, and I use it for... The other half, I make a God, I bow down... (laughs) worship it and beg it to save me like what a fool can't you just see isaiah kind of like what are we doing if it wasn't so sad it would be hilarious but whether the idols are in our hearts or whether we make them with our hands same game right same game god says to whom will you compare me that that's the question that's the test all right, we're not done. we got a couple more. Psalm 115, a really good one, still in idolatry. A little more trash talking in, in, in a pretty cool direction. Psalm 115, one to eight. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because, you're, because of your love and faith. There's comparison again, right? And then look, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold. Made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet that cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Tell I me mean, this isn't damning. And those who make them will be like them. What's in your heart produces fruit. So what do we do? We make gods that are certainly not only less than God. Do you you notice what, what the psalmist is saying and what Isaiah is kind of hinting at? The idols we make, whether they're in our hearts or with our hands, they're not only less than God, they're less than us. They're less than the people that made them. We have eyes that see. We have hands that feel. We have ears that hear. We have mouths that speak. Idols that we make, they can't do any of the stuff that we do. So the idols we make are subhuman, not only sub-divine, they're subhuman. Oh, yeah. And those who make them will be like them. Subhuman. Not experiencing any of the abundant life that God wanted, intended, and the gospel brings, but living in poverty, just like Isaiah said, feeding on ashes. That's where it winds up. Idolatry may look real, right? Idols and whether we fashion them or promised by the mile. At the end, subhuman ash heaps can't deliver what they promise. So who are you going to trust? Who are you going to follow? Hmm. All right, here we go. We got another one. Jeremiah 17. Maybe a new passage for you too. We're, we're hitting all the big prophets. Jeremiah 17. If someone were to say to me, maybe they wouldn't, but if someone were to say to me, all right, Charles, you only get one passage from which to explain your understanding of human beings or technically one only one passage to explain a biblical, your biblical anthropology, I would go to Jeremiah 17. Notice a lot of the ideas now are all, they started, they're starting to coalesce. Here's how Jeremiah says, it. he starts with idolatry right at the beginning of the chapter. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a, with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. There's idolatry language, but notice it's in their hearts, right? That, that, that's Ezekiel stuff. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees on the high hills. My mountain in the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. The ash heap. This is what the Lord says. Now, here we go. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water. Sound familiar? like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, but it never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. There's hard action again, right? Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay or those who gain riches by unjust means. When their lives are half gone, their riches will desert them and in the end they will prove to be fools. The glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water, Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. Now notice we're kind of back to trees again. And what does Jeremiah say? Jeremiah says, okay, here's a comparison again. We got a bush in the wasteland, you know, think tumbleweed blowing into that bush in the wasteland, and a tree planted next to a stream that's bearing fruit. I mean, it's all over the place, Right. And he even goes through the example of what roots do. And so the roots of the tree planted by the stream, its roots go deeply into the soil and they're moving over to the stream and they're sucking in nourishment. So even in times of drought, even in times when there's been no rain, when the sun is scorching, the tree is flourishing and fruitful because it's planted next to the stream. Notice it's planted again, then getting better than natural. Just like Psalm 1. Okay, now here, here's. Here's a, I was going to say $10,000 question, but I'm not paying you. Okay. In that passage, when it talks about the curse tree in verse five, and it talks about the good tree in verse seven, can okay, now hear Here's the question. What do roots do, right? Personification. What do human roots do in those verses? In verse five, what do roots do? Now, don't tell me stuck in water. What, what, what does the root, roots equate to in human beings? What do roots do? They what? They trust, right? They trust. Cursed is the tree that trusts in man. Blessed is the tree that trusts in the Lord. Roots are all about trust. We trust with our roots, right? Roots is heart. We trust in our hearts. So what do hearts do? Hearts trust. That's why it's not just emotion. No, hearts are your allegiance. Jonathan Edwards, probably his most famous book, is religious affections. Not affections in emotion. He's talking about affection just like this. Religious affections, true change. What are you sinking your roots into? That's what Edwards wrote about. Now you right, got the idea? Let me get the other passages. We'll do the model, and then we'll be about done. Joel 2, coming in for a landing. Let me show you how, how this works. Notice what Joel, this will change how you, how you read the Bible. Joel 2, 12. So with all that background, and then we're gonna get a model. We got like five minutes, I'll lay it out and we'll explain it next week. But I, I want you to at least get the moms. So here we go. All that stuff we taught, roots, hearts, unseen, seen, trees, trust, all that stuff. Listen, listen to what Joel says. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting and weeping and mourning. Right, that's fruit stuff. Return first with your heart and then your actions will follow, right? So where your heart goes, your other stuff goes. Where your heart goes, your actions will follow. So return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Hearts precede fruit. Got it? All right, so here we go. Here's the model. We're not going to, we'll give lots of illustrations next week, right? Um, here we go. I'm going to take all that stuff we've been talking about and try to make a, a simple, you're going to say, yeah, that's simple, right? Three windows. Think three little windows, right? The first window is world. Now, we didn't read too much about world, but think of the scene in Psalm 1, Luke 6, Jeremiah 17. Think of that, right? What's the context? Well, those trees are planted by the stream, but there's a whole world context that surrounds the tree. There's sun, there's clouds, there's rain, right? There's desert. There, there's a whole context. Your world, the world is the context for which, in which the tree is growing. So your world is everything in your life and around your life. So let me give you a few examples. If you're married your spouse is in your world. Your kids are in your world Your parents are in your world even if they've passed away. Your car is in your world Your pets are in your world. Pillars is in your world I'm in your world You're in my world. Your job is in your world Your finances are in your world. Your friends are in your world Your neighbors are in your world. Your temper tantrums, all all that. Everything you experience, everything you come across, everything is in your world. That's all kind of out here, right? Everything we interact with is in our world. Got it? People, things, places, all that kind of stuff. Um, Fruit is the middle window. Now, fruit, I I get to define it, right? It's my my picture. Um, Here's what I mean by fruit. Fruit are the things we produce. Our fruit comes in three main varieties, thoughts, actions, and feelings. We make that stuff, right? The fruit we produce, the things we think, the acts we do, and the, and the emotions we have. That's our fruit. Now, there's all kinds of things we say, right? All kinds of things we do, all kinds of feelings we have. All kinds, that's all the stuff we make. We make that stuff, Right? The third window, as you might guess, this is the root window, but that's called heart. Now, here's what I I'm, I'm going to use biblical language for heart. So get rid of the, val- I know it's a heart, but get rid of the Valentine idea. Here's what the Bible means by heart. With your heart, you trust. With your heart, you love, you, right? You prioritize. With your heart, you value. You put price tags on stuff. With your heart, you find your identity. With your heart, you sink your roots and that provides your foundation. Got it? So our thoughts, feelings, actions, that's fruit. Your trust, your loves, your values, where you find your identity, the things, that, the things you're following, that's heart stuff. Now, let me, let me just show you one thing before we... Uh, wrap this up, we live in, remember I told you, here's a culture clash. We live in a world. And I know lots of you have said this. I've said this. Um, here's what we say. We live as if world produces fruit. And our language betrays us. You make me so mad, right? World produces fruit. You, you make me so happy. I'm, I'm so happy when your world produces fruit. Only one problem. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. World can't make fruit. Heart makes fruit. World can provide the context, but your thoughts, your actions, your emotions—they come from your heart. They don't come from your world. Now, the process of—I'm going to end with this. We got two more weeks of this, right? Um, Here's the problem. We talked about idolatry is the problem, and idolatry happens like this. If you're valuing, loving, trusting, finding your identity, who you are, what you're living for in something other than Jesus in the gospel, that will produce all kinds of bad fruit. So for example, what does the Bible, one simple example. The Bible says, the love of money is the root of all. It, the Bible does not say money is the root of all evil, right? Money's in your world. Loving money is in your heart. That's why Paul says the love of money is the problem because if you make money your God, if that's your number one priority, what you're valuing above all, you'll do anything to get it or keep it. If that's your number one priority, right? That's the problem. Now, I don't mean to imply what's in the world isn't important. Here's how it works. Where do we get Where do we get the stuff from which we make our idols? Like, just like I said, remember last week, um, convictions are human constructs from biblical data. OK, here I'm going to change same kind of definition, but I'm going to change the, the, the word. Idolatry, human constructs. We make them from stuff in the world. We take good gifts that God's given and we promote those good gifts to God's status. And when a good gift becomes a God, it becomes a taskmaster that'll ruin your life. We take good world stuff we make it heart, value, love, priority, God stuff. That's the problem. Sin is most often, I, I can't think of many examples. Sin is not a normal sized love for bad stuff. That's not, what's the, that's not what I struggle with. I'd be willing to bet that's not what you struggle with. You don't struggle with normal sized love for bad stuff. What's your struggle? Probably same as mine an oversized love for good stuff. And if you love a good gift too much, that becomes promoted to an idol. And that love for the gift will cause the creator to be demoted. That's the problem of Romans one, right? The problem is you've taken a gift, something that is created, you've, You've promoted it to creator status. Now you're driven by that thing and it's ruining your life. All right, we got it? There's a whole lot, I know. Next week, here's what we're going to do, do next week. We're going we're to talk about a lot of examples. So we're going to go back to, we'll, we'll have as many passages next week, but all the passages next week will be illustrative of how this process works. And so... I'll try to pick some familiar, I haven't picked them yet. I'll try to pick some familiar ones that my guess is you've been reading, maybe a little superficially, you've been reading, stop doing that, start doing that, as if it was a fruit exchange. And you're gonna say, no, 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 no. The gospel is not trading fruit. Gospel transformation is changing heart. We gotta go below the action stuff and get to the heart allegiance stuff. That's gospel transformation. That is biblical repentance. It's not, biblical repentance isn't just, oh, forgive me for this and this and this and this sin. No, no, no. True repentance is confessing the sin under the sins. Confessing the thing you're loving and prioritizing you've promoted over Jesus. That's the real problem. We'll talk about that next week, all right? Sorry for all the different passages and stuff. Hang in there. I think the the model will become a little clearer And I think it'll change how you read the Bible and what you see. It sure has for me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you've given us an amazing book. You've given us minds that understand and hearts that can drink it in. And yet, Lord, we confess that there's so much about ourselves that we don't understand, so much about you that we can't understand. But Lord, in some small way, would you help us to uh, scratch the surface so we can appreciate and respect how you made us live in light of that as we live out the change that Jesus calls us to in the gospel. Lord, it's going to take your spirit to accomplish that. Help us to be cooperating with him as he seeks to bring about that change. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.